Welcome to Sound Waves of Belonging with myself, Anahi Dashgard. I am thrilled to be joined today by the incomparable Loretta J. Ross, activist, public intellectual, and scholar, one of the founders of the reproductive justice movement in the U.S. and recipient of the 2022 MacArthur Genius Award. As the third director of the first rape crisis center in the U.S. in the 1970s, Loretta helped launch the movement to end violence against women that evolved in today's Me Too movement. Her forthcoming book, Calling in the Callout Culture, is coming out shortly, and Loretta and I had the most fascinating conversation about the fuzzy line between trauma and activism, between calling someone out versus dehumanizing them, and the ways in which we sacrifice potential justice allies in our quest to be right. Loretta shares her early foray into activism, how she went from working with rape survivors to working with rape perpetrators, and ultimately how belonging can only be found in community, the ones we come from or the ones we make. Enjoy this rich conversation with Loretta Ross. Loretta, thank you for agreeing to jump into this conversation today, especially given how extremely busy I know that you are these days. You are the guru of creating communities of belonging, I feel, throughout your entire varied, storied, um, extremely challenging career in so many ways. So I think I'm going to start recently, um, where... In the last, I guess, two years ago now, you wrote that New York Times article that kind of went viral, calling out the call-out culture. And uh, I know your book is coming out with the same title. It's a little tricky, right? Because this is the the complaint of the right in speaking about progressives that um, we're we're so busy calling calling everybody out that we're impeding change. So, what made you step forward and call this out, so to speak? Well, we always have to remember about the right is that they are imitators, never originators. People on the left had complained about the call-out council culture for decades because it was leftist professors who were being called out in council, particularly right. anybody who spoke up on behalf of the Palestinians or challenged right. academic racism or the myth that colonialism was good for people in Africa and Asia. Right. They, they were the ones getting targeted and canceled. And uh -huh. so the left has been talking about that for decades, since the McCarthy witch hunts of the 1950s. Uh -huh. And so the right, once they decided that they didn't have a political platform that they could persuade the American people to support, they decided that they would then recast themselves as victims of the left and victims of the cancel culture and use it as a get out of jail free card for saying them the most dangerous, damaging things they could about other people mm -hmm. and using hate as their platform and using lies as their platform. But I didn't really focus on writing about the calling in culture because of what the right does, because the right is who they are. They do what they do because of who they are. Yeah. I focused on it because I'm concerned about the state of the progressives, of the state of the human rights movement. Yeah. I've said this so many times, it's becoming cliche, 
But the people who are fighting the human rights movement mistakenly think that they are fighting us. But in fact, I think they're fighting forces way beyond their power to control because they're fighting truth. They're fighting history. Mm -hmm. They're fighting evidence. And they're fighting time. Mm. And those forces are way beyond their power to control. And in fact, those of us in the human rights movement, we've got truth, evidence, time, and history on our side. Mm -hmm. And so my biggest fear is that we will snatch defeat from the jaws of victory because we hold the winning hand. Mm -hmm. As long as we don't cannibalize each other on the pathway to victory. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That is the greatest gift we can offer to the forces of oppression, mm -hmm. to take our eyes off of them mm -hmm. and turn our censorious judgmentalism mm -hmm. and self-defeatism on each other. Yeah. And so that's why seven years ago, I started working mm -hmm. on this culture shift I call calling in instead of calling people out because we can't build the power yeah. necessary to overwhelm the opponents of darkness if we're using our best bullets on each other. Give me an example of this, Loretta, where you've seen people that are a few centimeters apart on the political belief spectrum spending their energy fighting each other rather than the broader target. See this every election season mm. in the United States where people are so bitterly criticizing the candidates that could be representing them that it's almost like they're auditioning husbands instead of candidates. You know what I mean? I have to say, you're not marrying the person. You're just trying to decide whether to vote for them, maybe as the lesser of two evils, but that's your choice right now. Mm -hmm. Or even something even more mundane, and I hope this doesn't date your podcast, but Wakanda Forever just came out. And yeah. I went and saw it last week. And when I tried talking to some of my girlfriends about it, all they could do was pick apart what was wrong with the movie. Yeah. And I'm like, have you lost sight? Yeah. Of what a tremendous achievement that is. Yeah. That it was a it offered our community a chance to process the grief over Chadwick Boseman's mm -hmm. death. And it does so in such a celebratory, uplifting you know, healing way. Mm -hmm. And all you can talk about is nitpicking what that it wasn't a film you would have made. I mean, yeah, there are always Debbie Downers yeah. amongst us mm -hmm. who think that their job is to be the critical person, mm -hmm. always saying what's wrong with mm -hmm. what people are doing instead of appreciating mm -hmm. what people are doing right. Well, don't you think it's a bit of a failure in the way we organize, Loretta? Like we have critical race theory and, and all this theory about power and gaps in power, but we don't teach people the emotional intelligence and the psychological skills necessary to be the foundation to hold that other stuff up. And I speak because that was my journey. Like I got to a certain point where my despair and grief and anger at what I knew in my my 
my head, like what was happening in the world, it couldn't keep a pace. I had to go outside of the movement to go and learn how to deal with all of that, how to be, how to, you know, how to kind of work my emotions so that I could come back into the the fight for justice and be, be stronger. Don't you see that as like, we need some places to teach people and help people develop these skills? Well, we teach, we teach radical analysis, but we don't teach radical love. Yeah. Yeah. And you can't handle the power of the knowledge in a sustainable and responsible way if you don't have radical love practices of grace, respect, and forgiveness mm -hmm. to go along with that. In other words, you end up weaponizing your knowledge against others mm -hmm. and turning it on yourself. You know, feeling that you're not worthy, that you're not good enough, that everything everybody does to resist oppression, including yourself, is insufficient. Mm -hmm. And so that lack of self-love, that lack of self-forgiveness, that lack of grace mm -hmm. means that we not only judge ourselves too harshly, but we judge others. And so we end up with a lot of social justice personalities in the movement, the Debbie Downers, the mm -hmm. cynical Clydes, you know, <laughs> uh, the passive aggressive, you know, Agathas. I mean, these are people who, no matter what they see going on, it'll never be good enough for them. And they are convinced that if only the world listened to them, things would be right. Things would be perfect. Yeah. And, you know, they're always talking about, about, well, you know, how can we celebrate the overturning of an abortion ban when people are dying in Ukraine? I mean, they're always comparing mm -hmm. tragedies and yeah. trying to, come, you know, play the oppression Olympics game. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I maintain that if you think you're in a woke competition, all you've proven is that you're not woke enough. Yeah. It's like, it's like we've lost that connection to deeper purpose. Yeah, but people have different motivations for what animates them, what consoles them, what visions they have. So I try not to get into examining why people do social justice work, because a lot of it, people do it out of their traumas. Yeah. They do it through their religious convictions. They do it through their moral convictions and all of that. For whatever reason, I'm more concerned with the pragmatic aspects. Do you do it well? Do you do it effectively? Do you do it without harming others? Because it is a truism. Hurt people hurt people. Yeah. And when you inflict your harm and your trauma on the rest of the movement, because you've been hurt and traumatized, yeah. uh, that is a misuse of the movement because yeah. the human rights movement is not a personal therapy space. We need a harm reduction model for activists. <laughs> exactly. Actually, I think there is one. And I actually think the power of forgiveness is a harm reduction model. Mm. A lot of people think of forgiveness as weakness, but it's actually a harm reduction strength model. You've been in this work a long, long time. And you've got some powerful stories about the power of forgiveness. Can you can you tell me um, where you've used that, um, and it has helped you serve your work for change? 
Well, it probably starts with a personal story. Uh, I was incested and raped when I was 14 years old by a cousin. And because it was the 1960s, I had no choice but to have that baby when I became pregnant because abortion was not a viable option, at least as far as my parents knew. They probably could have shipped me off to Mexico, but that never occurred to them. <laughs> Thank God they didn't. <laughs> you would have started the Mexican Revolution. <laughs> if I hadn't died on a table, you're right. Yeah, that's right. And so I became convinced at 14 that I wasn't going to let my abuser determine my life story. Uh, because I easily could have dropped out of school because I chose to keep my son. I could have dropped out of school in the 10th grade and, you know, just become another teen mother struggling to take care of a child. Now, I was very fortunate to have strong parental support because my family didn't give up on me. And so my mother agreed to parent my son while I went off and finished high school and went to college. And that wasn't an easy decision for her because she'd already raised eight kids. So this was kid number nine. Wow. Starting all over for her. Um, but it took me a number of years to forgive my abuser. And I'm not even sure if I have. But I knew that I couldn't carry him in my heart without myopically focusing on what he did to me. And so, and particularly since I was parenting his child, mm -hmm. looked like him. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't visit on my son the anger I felt towards his father. Now, I wasn't always successful because every child deserves unconditional love from their mother. And I was never able quite to give that to my son. But I was also able to refrain from punishing him for being his son, the son of his father. Mm. And so it was always a battle mm -hmm. for me toggling between mm -hmm. trying to love the child and hate his circumstances and not taking out on him the things that I have been through. So I tend to date my early forays into forgiveness from that very personal conundrum that it was just impossible to hang on to hatred of his father and love the child at the same time. It was just impossible. Well, I want to just say, I know it was so long ago, Loretta, but I'm just so sorry that happened. Well, it was a consequence of parents mistakenly thinking that the best way to protect their children is to keep them sexually and often racially ignorant. Mm -hmm. My mother was concerned about stranger danger, but she was not concerned about family danger. Yeah. Yeah. And and I had never been taught anything about sex and sexuality. And so mm. when the abuser, Melvin, plied me with alcohol as a way to manufacture consent to sex with him, I didn't even know it was a problem. I thought I was being treated as an adult, you know, that I was doing the forbidden thing my parents wouldn't want me to do. So it felt 
like I was consenting to my own abuse. Wow. Because I'd never been warned about those kinds of things. And I'm not blaming my parents. My parents did the best they could with what they had. But today as a teacher, I'm constantly telling people, young people, make sure that you don't receive the same parenting that creates all these lagunas around what your children should know. You know, your children should know how the world works. And you can always do that in a very age appropriate way. Maybe the kindergarten won't get the same words that your 12th grader gets, but it should always be the truth. Don't gaslight your own children and then expect them to trust you. Well, Loretta, you know, given what happened to you, I know that um, at a certain point in your journey, you started working with other survivors of sexual rape, trauma, abuse. And then at a certain point, I know you also reached out to the perpetrators and in, in many of whom were in prison. What made you do that? Well, I have to honestly say that I became the executive director of the DC Rape Crisis Center in 1979. And it was the first rape crisis center in the country. And that's where I found the words to attach to my experiences because I didn't know how to describe what had happened to me. And it was talking to other rape and incest survivors that I pulled myself back from the brink of suicide and self-destruction. And found the company of other survivors, particularly women, mm-hmm. who worked with me to keep me present, to keep me engaged in saving my life. Now, while I was at the Rape Crisis Center, we received this letter from a man named William Fuller. And, and, and he wrote in his letter, outside, I raped women. Inside, I'm raping men. I'd like not to be a rapist anymore. And I swear that letter sat on my desk for like three months before I would respond. As a matter of fact, I tried to bury it under under papers on my desk because <laughs> it disturbed me profoundly. It actually pissed me off because I was like, how dare you? We barely have enough resources for the survivors mm-hmm. of sexual violence. And here's a perpetrator asking for help. I mean, so I didn't have the best fuzzy, warm feeling over getting this letter, I was probably re-traumatized by it. Mm-hmm. Yet, I couldn't throw it in the trash. Notably, I didn't throw it in the trash. I kept it on the desk. Mm-hmm. And finally, I picked it up, reread it, and decided to go to Lorton, which was the uh, prison where they incarcerated offenders from Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. And I think I first went there meaning to give him a piece of my mind. (laughs) I really did. I I can't put any warm and fuzzy feelings on that either. I thought that I could at least punish him in a way that I couldn't punish the people who had violated me. Mm -hmm. And so when I walked into that prison, I was expecting to only meet William. Instead, there were six beefy, buff, Black men waiting for me, looking like MMA fighters in this room. I was terrified. 
even though there was a prison guard right outside the door. I mean, you know, I wasn't actually in any physical danger, but. You're in the lion's den. Right, exactly. And I was 25 years old. Wow. And so the only thing I knew to do was to tell my story, what had happened to me. And that opened the floodgates for them to tell their story about how they had been violated and abused as male children that had normalized violence in their lives and Mm -hmm. how they had been turned from children into predators and continued to be predators. Matter of fact, the reason they were so so brawny and buff was that they were the prison's predators, taking advantage of everybody else in the prison. And so they had formed a group called Prisoners Against Rape, which actually happened a couple of years before I came. I wasn't the reason they formed Prisoners Against Rape. And so once they started telling me their stories, then I started seeing them as the victimized violators that they actually were. And so their request of me was quite simple. They wanted me to teach them Black feminist theory and how to fight against rape culture. They were the first group of people I ever heard use the phrase rape culture. Wow. And um, I said yes. And instead of teaching them, I think they taught me a lot more than I ever expected to learn. You know, I never grew to want any entanglement with them outside of the pedagogical one of teaching them. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, I was very strict about I'm not bringing anything in this prison for you. No cigarettes, no clothes, no nothing. Um, I'm not going to ever write a letter to the parole board on your behalf. I mean, you have raped and murdered women, and I'm quite okay with you staying here for the rest of your life. <laughs> you know, that, that is non-negotiable. But if you want to address rape culture, I will do that with you. And so for close to three years, I would go to Lorton almost every Friday to conduct political education with these incarcerated men. Wow. Yeah, it's really powerful to hear you say that. And I, I uh, you know, I, I think about elders in the uh, social justice movement that I know that talk about, especially in the women's movement, you know, working across the, you know, working with conservative women to get abortion laws passed here in Canada. Like there was, it seems to be more ability to work to cross these big differences in political ideology and opinion and um, then than we have today. Like I think about, and I know you've written about this trigger warnings. And I, you know, I, I think how is hearing certain words spoken uh, equated as being as traumatizing as, you know, like, you know, that's to me where you're looking at like this now becomes a therapeutic space as opposed to a, an organizing or a movement space. And I, I do, you know, I, I personally, I think that in this effort to bring in more psychological awareness, we've kind of, the pendulum has swung the other way to the extreme and hopefully we'll, we'll come out somewhere in the middle. So people have more ability to discern what's mine to take care of and 
how do I focus on the task here? Whereas I, you know, now I just feel like it's all kind of jumbled in together. Yeah, I think that one of the mistakes we made as a women's movement was overpromising safe space. There's no such thing as safe space. We can make it safer, but we can't make it safe. Mm-hmm. And that concept have been, has been so distorted mm-hmm. in popular culture that people actually think that they should never be in a space where mm-hmm. they hear an idea they don't agree with, that they that they are forced to grow beyond what they person presently feel and think, mm-hmm. where they won't be challenged in any kind of way, and they won't be reminded of things they've been through. I'm like, excuse me? Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, of course, Bernie's Reagan's article on coalition politics is the go-to piece when you want to read about how movements are not a womb. <laughs> you know, they're a place to challenge oppression. And so I don't use trigger warnings in any of my educa- educational efforts, whether it's mm-hmm. in a structured classroom or in popular education setting. Um, because it to, to me, it is a misuse of a psychological term. When you are triggered, that means you are involuntarily jettisoned back into a past traumatic exp- experience. Yeah. And you can't bring yourself forward back into the present. Yeah. So basically, if you could tell me what date and time it is, you aren't being triggered. Mm. <laughs> you know, maybe you're being disturbed. Maybe you are being discommoded, discombobulated, made uncomfortable. All of those things are possible. But what you are not being is triggered if you can tell me that you're in present time. Because when someone is truly triggered, it takes an expert psychotherapist or a psychologist to bring you out of that trap of the past. Mm. It's not done by avoiding subjects. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really helpful distinction. I have to ask you, would you be willing to go in and work with a QAnon group at this point in your career, similar to working with the rape rapist perpetrators in prison? You can only work with people who are capable of dealing with reality. People who have abandoned any engagement with truth, facts, and evidence are beyond my skill set to work with. Right. Mm -hmm. So I I would never pretend to have the uh, capacity or the capability or the skill set to work with someone who's that detached from reality. But the majority of the world aren't QAnonists. So I work with almost everybody who hasn't quite gone off on that deep end. Yeah. Let me also push back at you because the fact that you would ask the question is a mistake that I think progressives make. There are so many people adjacent to us who slightly differ from us that we could productively work with. And we're going to skip over all of them and try to work with the hardcore, the people less less likely to listen to us available. So that we can feel good about reaching the hardcore people. Yeah. That is such a strategic mistake that we make over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. But we won't talk to the mm-hmm. Girl Scouts who won't mm-hmm. say the A word because they're not abortion focused enough. 
or we won't yeah. talk to the 50 percenters who could go either to the right or the left because they use they don't know the latest lingo to use or you know mm -hmm. they get the people's gender pronouns wrong or yeah. you know and so yeah. and we leap over all of these possible allies to try to flip the hard cores you know, yeah so we can feel best about ourselves yeah yeah i and it's easy to point fingers at them because we're not in relationship with any of the well most of us aren't in relationship with them and so there's a more risk to work in the relationships that you're surrounded by <laughs> and to go all the way to this like where there's nothing nothing you're putting on the line earlier loretta you said that one of the people become activists for many reasons and one of the biggest reasons is because of our own trauma it's a great motivation and it's our biggest liability, I think, for those working to, towards creating social change. And like you said, because we don't have enough literacy around harm, we, we get confused all the time between what's presently happening and our past, you know, you know, traumatic situations and the past and the present constantly become enmeshed. We're in a climate crisis. We don't have up teen years as a species on this planet to dick around. And unless we find ways to work across our differences, we're not going to make any changes. And so my come from place, and I'm, I, I hear you out there and I think, thank God, like Loretta's got the eldership. She's got the smart. She's got the experience to be able to have people really hear this message. And we need it. We're in this organizing moment that we're calling relational organizing. And I like the fact that people more readily listen to people that they trust and know. I get that. But relational organizing has a built-in limit because you can only organize people who know you and people you know. Mm -hmm. And so what it does, maybe inadvertently, is make you care less about people who don't know you and people you don't know. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is that you care less about what's happening to the women in Iran because you don't know any Iranian women, mm -hmm. right? And they don't know you, right? And I keep telling people the relationship that most matters is with your own integrity. Mm -hmm. You should care about Iranian women because of who you are not who they are. Well said, Loretta. Thank you for your work. I'm just going to finish by asking you, how would you define belonging at this point in your life? And do you feel it? My mother's family were slaves on a peanut plantation in Selma, Alabama. And yet we can trace our family roots to 1844, which is very unique for a Black family in the United States. And so my sense of belonging is grounded in the land, is grounded in relationships that go way back, is grounded in a sense of knowing that I exist because my family does. It's a very Mbutu kind of sense of belonging. I am because we are kind of thing. And so I consider that a privilege. Because so many people that I meet are painfully adrift from their ancestors. I ask most, you know, my white kids in my class, you know, tell me about your grandparents suffering. They have no idea. 
They have no idea. All of this stuff is carefully curated out of the family history. Even children of Holocaust survivors, people protect them from the realities of what they've been through. And so you diminish people's sense of belonging when you cut them adrift from their histories, when you cut them adrift from their lineage. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're doing your children no favors mm-hmm. when they can't see how the chain of freedom stretches back towards the ancestors and stretches forward towards their descendants. Mm-hmm. So that to me is belonging. Yeah, I hear you saying that we need a, a place and a community to, to root ourselves in because we can't just manufacture belonging on our own. Right. Well, you can't do it by yourself, that's for sure. Yeah. It's not who's it's not who you accept, who who accepts you. Yeah. That's how you you, you know, love is not who you love, it's who loves you back. <laughs> <laughs> Well said. Thank you, Loretta. Such a joy to speak with you today. Well, thanks for having me. And I wish you luck on your podcast, your show, and look forward to continuing to work with you. Me too. Thanks so much for joining today please feel free to share this episode. And you can also visit my website, Anahit Dashgard, A-N-N-A-H-I-D-D-A-S-H-T-G-A-R-D.com, where you can order my latest book, Bones of Belonging, where I dive deeper into themes we discussed here today. Be well, and look forward to you joining next time. Mm-hmm.